0: Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. There's a particular genre of old guy entertainer who, like, all they have to do now, their career has just been reduced to uh, accepting lifetime achievement awards, going to events where a good reception is lined up for them as if on a t ball stand, and all they have to do is just swing the bat a little bit and hit it out of the park. Uh, but all they can do is say problematic things anymore. And this is an instinct that is constantly working at cross purposes with an entire industry that's just been set up to canonize them.
1: Will, Will by the way, is is talking about us as, uh, as aging podcasters. <laughs> the guy who used to be the
0: absolute king of it was Jerry Lewis. He used to go to these like comedy events that are like an evening with the master. And he'd be like, I don't think women are funny. <laughs> and, you know, it would just, just d- destroy his legacy in a night. <laughs> <laughs> and And there'd be people on the panels like younger comedians they'd be like, "Oh, oh, but but surely you think Lucille Ball was funny?" And you'd be like,
1: "Ah." <laughs> no, nah, I don't think so. Never did care for it. Yeah.
0: He's uh, passed on, of course. And so now the mantle's been taken up by John Cleese. I was reading an article this morning in the Hollywood Reporter called John Cleese Had Thoughts on Slavery at South by Southwest. Oh. And it was super cringy. Oh, so, my God.
1: <laughs> pretty highly ranked among inauspicious headlines, that one.
0: So because of the pandemic, the South by Southwest festival, this enormous multimedia festival, it's been Away for three years,
1: and they decided to they decided to inaugurate its return by inviting John Cleese.
0: I mean, it's it's (laughs) it's incredible. They have any number of uh, more cutting-edge events that they're doing. I mean, who
1: else did they invite? Is Lucille Ball going to be in attendance?
0: <laughs> I think I think uh, Jerry Lewis's corpse, in <laughs> fact, has, has been brought out to accept a trophy. But yes, this was the first event of the first day. It was called John Cleese in Conversation, and it was a panel with him and three younger comedians, comedians of uh, generations under him, uh, Jim Gaffigan and a daily show comedian named Dolce Sloan, no relation, and uh, Ricky Velez. And they're having this very cordial (laughs) conversation until uh, about an hour into it when Dulce Sloan makes a comment about colonization and Cleese starts going, you know, people forget that the British Empire was the basic political unit of organization for 6,000 years. The British didn't start colonizing. History is a history of crime. It's a history of people who were stronger beating up people who were weaker oh and it's God. always been like that it's deeply distasteful but to pretend that one lot were worse than another you know the British have been slaves twice right so he goes off on a tangent about how like between the years zero to four hundred what
1: like when when they were conquered by <laughs> Julius Caesar like <laughs> Ye- yes
0: exactly when they were conquered by Julius Caesar <laughs> and so the panel's getting a little uncomfortable so so then he starts going I will reparations from Italy and then the Normans came over in 1066
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> John Cleese hasn't gotten over William the Conqueror. He wants reparations for the Battle of Hastings. It,
0: it, it's so funny because he's in his 80s and literally... <laughs> just
1: just John, John Cleese just getting incredibly triggered like every time he sees the Bayeux Tapestry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All you have to do at that point is just come out on stage. Just accept your plaudits.
1: Uh, but, you know,
0: you, you gotta hand it to the guy. Prickly to the end.
1: <laughs> so, sorry, what, is, what was the nature of this conversation they're having? Like, to me, the bigger scandal here is that, like, why is John Cleese appearing at at South by Southwest? And what was the in conversation with? Like, what were they talking about? How did the conversation turn to John Cleese soliloquizing about the history of of Britain's being enslaved?
0: Well, it seems the event was just called John Cleese in conversation, but he's joined by these younger comedians as if to suggest
1: like, Uh, the baton is being passed from one generation to the next. We're
0: starting South by Southwest (laughs) off with, you know, we're paying tribute to the old masters and We're seeing the continuity because Dulce Sloan is a a black woman comedian. So it's as if to say there's the old generation and there's the new generation. And look at how they respect each other. Let's see them trade ideas, trade wisdom that one generation has that the other doesn't. And I guess they were talking about comedy. They were talking about uh, their different approaches, their different backgrounds. And then she makes one offhanded comment about colonization. And it just instantly launches him into this thing about how, you know, it's the repression Olympics these days. (laughs) With the kids with the avocado toast are so easily <laughs>
1: triggered. <laughs> See, this makes me miss, you know, the the vintage John Cleese politics stuff, where he was like ardent centrist, like in the in the eighties when there was when like fifteen percent of. Like, Labour MPs defected and created something called the Social Democratic Party, which was, for the 1980s, a sort of, like, party of the militant centre that was going to, like, transcend the class divide or whatever. Like, Cleese used to do these, like, party political broadcasts where
0: he would be in full Basil faulty mode doing the whole shtick of being, like, why we need proportional representation is because this party <laughs> yeah, get 40% of the vote, but they get 70% of the seats. Doesn't that seem strange to you? <laughs> And then he, you know, pulled out a branch and started hitting his car or whatever.
1: What was the last thing John Cleese did that was funny? A fish called Wanda.
0: Yeah, I, I think it was.
1: Now, what is that about? From like 1991 or something? It was the
0: year before I was born. It was, <laughs> it was 1988.
1: So, so <laughs> the last time John Cleese did something funny was uh, the Berlin Wall was still up. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> I mean,
0: your your mileage for Rat Race may vary. Uh, perhaps you perhaps you tittered during his appearance in Die Another Day, but. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I think Wanda is a pretty good consensus pick. This was also on my mind, too, because J.K. Rowling has been causing another storm on Twitter today uh, and yesterday. She's been at it all
1: week. Oh, about what, I wonder?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's going on on the British Isles. There's clearly been something in the water that's affecting everyone with over a million dollars who's an entertainer. She is that classic case of somebody who was just insulated from reality for 20, 25 years, received nothing but praise and coup from a series of yes men and then all of a sudden a couple of people disagreed with her online and she's decided to become the anita bryant of the 21st century
1: this is only tangentially related but to return to your original point about entertainers where there's like a whole kind of edifice erected around them of just worship and praise and they and they can't help but but blow it To me, the virtuosic performance to end them all in this regard was Clint Eastwood and his incredible uh, RNC chair speech, which is still one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And the man just went back to making movies. In fact, I think he made made a few more that got nominated. He has made a few more that have been nominated for Oscars and stuff since then, which is incredible.
0: As you know, I like that speech for two reasons. One of them is just that he went with no preparation whatsoever. I mean, he's been such a cultural icon for so long, and he was clearly just getting slobbered over so much by all of team romney just to show up that he kind of thought oh i can go out and you know i just uh just wing it and the other <laughs> thing that's funny about it is the fact that he kept attacking barack obama from the left <laughs> do you remember that speech there was the part where he's like and you're uh you're flying your your gas guzzler plane <laughs> and there was the other part where he was like so many broken promises you You promised to close Gitmo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we've got quite a movie to talk about this week. I say quite a movie because this feels like a real return to our roots. I've been craving something like this for such a long time. We've had so many digressions into uh, into new territory on this show, but this one feels like a vintage Michael and Us classic. You know, it's man of the year. It's swing vote. It's that kind of movie, folks. Now, it feels a little silly to talk about something like this, given everything that's going on right now.
0: And, you know, just to dig up a forgotten movie <laughs> to bury it all over again. A movie that's that nobody likes and is doing nobody any
1: harm. <laughs> well, but as the great Leonard Nimoy once said, the world needs laughter. So let's that's get right. into it. <laughs> It was lust mm-hmm. at first sight.
0: Rolling. Oh, know okay. Love at first fight.
1: I do not. The international symbol for no. I do not want you to come near me again. Wait, 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 a, minute, wait a
0: minute. So we're still on from midnight? It was a relationship that was doomed.
1: Would you please find a station?
0: Wait a minute. I'm looking for a song to last forever. Our song, if you must know. Well, I'll bet you of money. MGM Pictures presents <laughs> Michael Keaton
1: you have nice feet well you know i work
0: out (laughs) gina davis
1: did you just start (laughs)
0: sometimes words just get in the way can you help me out for a sec sec how do you say sex speechless
1: shall we speak the unspoken language of love you mean the kind only dogs can hear well the movie
0: is 1994's speechless starring michael keaton and gina davis it is a bog standard romantic comedy of the era Could could not be more typical. It's such a typical romantic comedy that it feels kind of like the romantic comedy that would be playing in a movie uh, yes! like on, a, on a TV. <laughs> and it's especially like that because of the premise of the film, which is one of the worst high concept ideas, I think, to ever come out of Hollywood, which is listeners may know that George H.W. Bush's strategist, Mary Madeline, is married to Bill Clinton's first election strategist, James Carville. They romanced each other during the 1992 election, were married shortly after, and they've been married ever since. And that was a popular media story in some circles. It still is a popular media story.
1: Isn't there a TV show like based on their romance or something? I think they played themselves in some kind of TV show. Perhaps I'm conflating two things, but uh, some people listening will know what I'm talking about.
0: After the 1992 election, they both became separately and together big media stars. They were always going on. CNN, I think they were official CNN contributors, doing their crossfire shtick, but then, you know, they would go home at night and put politics aside and just have a loving marriage that lasts to this day. And this has been a source of endless fascination for some people. So fascinating that Hollywood made a romantic comedy on the premise, starring uh, two of the leading lights in 90s Hollywood.
1: Yeah, so this movie is uh, partaking in many uh, annoying 1990s shticks that we've complained about on the show before, but one of them is certainly this kind of era of the backroom political strategist, you know, the the archetype very much popularized in D.A. Pennebaker's The War Room, which of course includes James Carville along with George Stephanopoulos. This was a period where we were all just supposed to kind of wonder at the sorcery that happened behind the scenes, you know, with the speech writers and the campaign hacks just toiling away on a diet of nothing but pizza and coffee in support of their respective causes. Now I'm unaware before the 1990s of the culture being quite so obsessed with you know, political operatics. And I think one of the things you see in the 1990s and right up to the present day was the coverage of politics becoming sort of more and more meta. So it was more and more about the process and the speech writing. And instead of discussing the content of of messaging and the actual issues that were at play, everything was punditry, so everything became more and more about how's this gonna play in the swing districts or whatever. And as ordinary media consumers, you too were trained, you know, you, the public, we, the public were kind of trained to think that way as well. So this was kind of a point where politics was almost self-consciously becoming a spectacle and you were actually being encouraged by major news networks and by movies like this one to kind of think about it that way.
0: I think to some degree, too, it was also fueled by the particular circumstances of the Bill Clinton candidacy and ultimately presidency, because you'll remember that. The 92 primaries were such a roller coaster time for the campaign. You know, he got the name Slick Willie, he got the name Comeback Kid because of his seemingly supernatural ability to survive all of these scandals that would have sunk anyone else. The Jennifer Flowers scandal, the I Didn't Inhale scandal, all sorts of things like that and so somebody like Carville got this mystique around him as the wizard who was able to manipulate it and the fascination is fueled by like sort of the media and I guess to some extent the voters enjoying the manipulation they enjoyed that they knew the spin was just spin but it was done with such panache well played and this movie is really trading in that sensation
1: yeah absolutely and and in many ways this is actually a deeply cynical movie like one of the reasons why I think it's so funny and and why even though it's just I mean, don't misunderstand me here. This movie is an absolute shit sandwich. It is one of the worst. It's one of the worst things that we've watched in quite a long oh, time. Oh, I didn't
0: hate it that much. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> for God's sake, there's so little there. I mean,
1: I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's objectionable. I just think it's incredibly facile and paint by the numbers. <laughs> yeah, and and, yeah. and I want to. I don't want to come to that in a little bit. I mean, this movie kind of like like Man of the Year with Robin Williams sets up a premise and then is so lethargic that it refuses to even execute its own premise and then by the end the politics stuff is almost just kind of incidental
0: the movie is boldly lame it is heroically unwilling to be smart or interesting it's a somewhat provocative premise that it consistently pitches just on the level of the worst sitcom on tv (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah and running through it really is you know it has that kind of politics what a concept thing that just sort of like oh look it's they're doing the politics stuff isn't that cool the campaign bus etc etc but funny Fundamentally, it's it's not a film that's actually that interested in politics, and it just kind of portrays politics as sort of boring and and corrupt. Anyway, we can come to all that, but let's uh, let's walk through the plot a little bit.
0: Well, this will be pretty quick. Michael <laughs> Keaton and Gina Davis star as speechwriters on dueling Senate campaigns in Texas.
1: <laughs> you can see where this is going. <laughs>
0: He's a Republican. She is a Democrat. Uh, they meet cute. They feel romantic sparks they don't know what the other does for a living their conversations start infecting each other's work in bizarre ways is is there is there somebody on the inside do we have a rat here who's who's leaking this stuff and they don't know until they appear together at the same event Uh, They're they're at a Texas school where they uh, deliver a panel discussion on the inner workings of political campaigns and a bit of a comical scene there where they start kind of airing their grievances in front of a wide-eyed politics, what a concept audience. (laughs) So that's act one.
1: Yeah, there's a really great scene early on. I guess it's their very first encounter. One of the sort of recurring things is is that they're both insomniacs. And I guess that's just part of this idea that like both of these characters are so energized by politics politics they just can't sleep cuz their brains are just undergoing so many rotations every day as they're thinking about you know the latest polls or or whatever but so they can't sleep and both of them go down to like the pharmacy or the the gift shop or something in the hotel they're staying at and they both grab the same item and both of them being spin doctors they both come up with uh increasingly ludicrous yarns there's a sort of arms race where she says that you know she, her her child is sick and needs it and then he responds that you know his grandma's sick and she just Had an operation, then she challenges him, puts him on the spot by saying, "Oh, what kind of operation?" And you know, then he's kind of uh, he's kind of flat-footed, and he starts talking about how his grandma had liposuction. Anyway, hijinks ensue. A few more barbs are exchanged, and then, wouldn't you know it, they decide to split it in two. So, bipartisanship, folks, right there. They both take half of the half of the cough and cold medication.
0: Complications arise as they must. Gina Davis has a fiance, a journalist, a foreign war correspondent, played by no less than Christopher Reeve. That's right. This movie has a Batman and a Superman. In another section of the film, Keaton gets a hold of Davis's planner, which he uses to sabotage one of the candidate's speeches. It's a big comical set piece where he puts in the words from, I'll be working on the railroad on the teleprompter, which I thought this scene was funny, because if this actually happened in real life, this would become like a campaign-defining event.
1: Okay, but here's here's the thing. Like, so in that uh, in that scene, the, the demo Democrat is giving this whole spiel, which is obviously fake about his like blue collar background and how, you know, he grew up working on the Grand Pacific Railway or something where his dad worked it's clearly just made up and fake and i mean i almost have to believe this is an intentional reference to joe biden's 1988 campaign <laughs> moment where he not only plagiarized a speech by the labor party leader neil Kinnock, but plagiarized a speech where Kinnock is specifically talking about his upbringing in wales in a coal mining community and biden just sort of tweaked all the references to make them a little more american so he was also plagiarizing neil Kinnock's life story and it's it's pretty much exactly like that
0: yeah that incident would have been fresher in the popular memory at the time so it probably was inspired by that
1: and i started thinking as i was coming over here why is it that joe biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university why am i the first kinnick
0: in a thousand generations to be able to get to university
1: why is it that my wife who's sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family to ever go to college why is Glenis the first woman in her family in a thousand generations to be able to get the university.
0: Certain campaign issues make very brief appearances, very brief appearances. One of the big campaign issues is a big ditch along the Texas-Mexico border that is designed to secure the border. Keaton successfully spins it as the friendship ditch in that it bolsters the friendship between the two (laughs) nations by uh, enforcing a strong border, and the success of this spin catches the Democratic campaign off guard. There are very few scenes where we get a great sense of either character's politics I mean, you know, Well, this, okay, it's, I was it's a stupid say, romantic I mean, comedy. What do you this, want?
1: <laughs> this, this issue of like the, the Mexico border ditch, I think might be the sole political issue to appear in the film. And what's so funny about it is in that scene when they're at the school, one of the things she's mad at him for is the fact that she has told him about the ditch. Like he didn't know about the ditch. And then his campaign was able to make an issue out of it. So she accuses him of stealing it. And I just love the idea that, it, yeah, it's this Hot-button issue, this border ditch, but it somehow had not made an appearance in a United States Senate election, like up until that point. <laughs> like, if the lead speechwriters for the Democratic and Republican candidates had not happened to meet and sleep together, somehow this issue would not have actually like appeared in the campaign. It doesn't make any sense. Of course, I think the ditch is also supposed to be a metaphor for partisan America. You know, the ditch isn't between uh, Mexico and, and the United States. The ditch is between Democrat and Republican. It's in our hearts. And the rest of the movie is going to show us that, you know, you can you can actually build a bridge across that ditch.
0: Well, there is some evidence in the film to support that theory. Uh, there are a couple of... A very small number of times where the characters sort of express their own political life. When Davis and Keaton meet, there's a brief moment where they don't know they're working on rival campaigns yet. They're just watching the news together on TV, and she says, "Oh, that guy—he's turned the state into a big slush fund." And then Keaton goes, "Well, I prefer him over some tax-and-spend knee-jerk liberalism." So you know, he—he's a—he's a fiscal conservative, not a social conservative. There's nothing—there's nothing you hear about abortion, <laughs> uh, and then. they they agree to disagree and they move on at that point but then the other the other moment where they kind of talk about politics together my favorite scene in the movie i'm sure it's yours as well a scene that is you know within the context of this movie is almost insulting (laughs) like this movie is so just so empty-headed for most of its runtime but then halfway through there's a tender scene between the two of them that tries to tries to make a statement about politics where you know they're sitting outside by a fountain you know they've had some ups and downs in their relationship so far but there's a kind of grudging mutual respect and definitely a bit of a mutual attraction at this point. She's asking Keaton about his background, you know, very strange background. You were, you wrote sitcoms before you got into political speech writing. He said, I was a speechwriter before. Then I found out I believed in my words more than the candidates did. So I decided to write for sitcoms instead. It paid better. I would have liked to have heard more about that because that implies that the Keaton character is a true believer. You know, this guy, this guy's Dinesh. This this guy's on the right <laughs> flank of the party and he like got into the Republican Party for like all the right reasons. And he got frustrated that all these, you know, rhinos, these uh, centrist frauds like George H.W. Bush were coming in and watering things down. But the, the movie tragically does not explore that possibility.
1: Well, so interestingly, this movie came out in December of 1990 which i believe is is mere weeks after the republican landslide in the midterms where newt gingrich ran on his contract with america but of course like uh, gina davis and michael keaton bill clinton and newt gingrich would go on to show that it is in fact possible to work across the partisan divide You know, not everything in Gingrich's Contract of America got passed, even with the Republican majority. But through cooperation across the partisan divide, you know, Bill Clinton passed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act, (laughs) which was essentially just a carbon copy of what Newt Gingrich wanted to do to welfare as well. After the 94 election, of course, Bill Clinton's personal Rasputin, Dick Morris, famously said that uh, the administration's strategy for dealing with Gingrich was going to be to fast forward the Gingrich agenda, which was going to make Republican issues, quite quote unquote, less appealing. So you were going to defeat the Republicans by just like stealing all of their moves and passing much of their agenda. Morris, in fact, created a back channel to the Republican leader of the Senate, uh, who was a guy called Trent Lott, who was actually a former client of his and uh, apparently told him quite giddily, we'll pass everything you guys want to pass. So this movie was actually quite prescient in some ways. (laughs) So I do I do think actually the timing of this movie is quite significant because I think it really comes out of an era where if people think back to the Clinton era, they think of a time that was intensely partisan, and of course in many ways it was, but at the same time there was bipartisan cooperation on a scale that there had not been in, in decades. And I think in many ways, this is how we should remember the politics of the 1990s. I mean, there was a really fierce and and kind of violent culture war. There was a a divide between Democrats and Republicans that was pretty cavernous. But at the same time, they were working together to legislate the next phase of Reaganism. And so I feel like that's one of the reasons why there there were films like this, where in this case, you know, the the protagonists are supposed to represent this really horrendous divide. But then the divide, you know, in this movie is, is sort of invoked, but never really explained. Like they don't, actually really seem to disagree about anything and then even on the one issue that the film tries to establish as a point of contention which is this you know Mexico border ditch or whatever it really just appears as sort of an issue of political tit for tat like neither of them seems particularly invested in it it briefly appears uh, some way through the first act of the film and then it's just never brought up again and that comes out of a climate where there's this fierce kind of political and partisan divide but you know the two parties don't actually really uh, you know there's a tremendous consensus between both of them and a lot of points of agreement
0: incredible that we didn't mention that that centerpiece scene between Keaton and Davis where they're at the fountain talking about their politics together ends with Davis saying I hate how people treat it like a game like it's just some race with winners and losers what we do affects people and the people who do anything to win do anything to keep on winning uh, and this epiphany—I mean, I I, I I just constantly feel ridiculous interrogating the logic of this movie, which is so like flagrantly on its face a stupid movie that's not worth taking seriously. But nevertheless, this epiphany only ends up being applied to the interpersonal dynamic of the two of them.
1: <laughs> well, because then after that, he says, "Wow, that's the most I haven't heard anybody speak that way in a long time. You should run for office."
0: And she does. She decides at the end to run for. Office office because it's going to be her time after i got done watching the movie because i was looking for something to think about anything to think about i i started <laughs> researching the relationship between mary madeline and james carville did you know that they collaborated on two separate books about their marriage you know tolstoy got war and peace done in one book but these two had to do it in two uh, the first one came out in 1995 and it was called all's fair Love, War, and Running for President. I didn't find a lot of reviews of it, but I did find Gore Vidal's review in the New York Times. Uh, he was slumming a little bit reviewing this, but he seemed to, he seemed to have a pretty good time with it. Uh, one paragraph that he wrote read, words like liberal, conservative, and radical mean, okay, I won't do a Gorvadal impression. <laughs> he says, words like liberal, conservative, and radical mean absolutely nothing in this text any more than they do in American politics. The only radical note struck in the campaign was by Pat Buchanan when he prescribed a religious war for us. This certainly promises to liven up future elections, should any be held, of course. (laughs) That's a very Gorvadal touch. (laughs) If All's Fair has a subtext, it is that the cost of electing one of two or even three essentially interchangeable candidates is not only too (laughs) high, but potentially divisive when Cross confronts satanic condom. Now, uh, some years later in 2014, mary madeline and james carville collaborated on a second book called love and war 20 years three presidents two daughters and one louisiana home
1: and an awful lot of money
0: (laughs) the the louisiana home by the way was one that they purchased in the late 2000s to uh, according to them help with the economic recovery of new orleans so isn't that isn't that generous of them
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I love the I love the noblesse oblige of that. They're like, look, we could live in Maryland or something. You know, we could live in one of the nation's most expensive area codes. But instead, we decided to buy, you know, a $20 million mansion or whatever in New Orleans. And then and- when we
0: sell it for $50 million <laughs> in yeah, 10 years, yeah. that money is going to trickle down back into the community, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, you proles should thank us.
0: I couldn't find any really serious reviews of this book. I kind of feel like it passed without much notice. But I did find an excerpt that Politico read uh it's structured like a dialogue between the two of them it quotes him it quotes her quotes him i'll just read a couple of excerpts from it here's how they describe the marriage Uh, carville says many people thought it was some kind of stunt marriage no (laughs) many people thought it was some kind of stunt marriage but we knew what we were getting into sure we have the republican versus democrat dynamic sleeping with the enemy or whatever but what two married people have ever been exactly alike how boring Mary says, James led the charge for the wayward, I never inhaled, southern fried, but elite educated Bill Clinton. I was the one who stood by the ultimate statesman, George H.W. Bush. So a seemingly impossible romance between two oddballs became gussied up as the story of a modern day Romeo and Juliet on the road to the White House. We didn't encourage or discourage it, we just went with it. Uh, Carville says, as with any marriage, part of the trick is realizing you can't change your spouse even if you wanted to. Mary will watch Fox News or listen to Rush Limbaugh. I'll head to another room and flip on Sports Center. I rarely watch her when she's on television, and I'm pretty certain she rarely wastes a minute watching me. That doesn't mean I'll ever quite understand Republicans. Finally, uh, Mary Madeline says, this is the key part, In our 23 years together, there have only been three events that have threatened permanent separation. One, my going back into the White House in 2000. Two, the Iraq War. And honestly, the most troublesome, three, our disparate views of the animal kingdom. Now, She wanted a patent, he didn't. So that's a a sample of some of the wisdom in 2014's Love and War, 20 Years, Three Presidents, Two Daughters, and One Louisiana Home.
1: Well, that's actually a useful pivot back to something else I wanted to say on the movie, which is that I said off the top that like Man of the Year, this film sets up a premise that it's then too lethargic to execute. And, you know, I think like uh, James Carville and uh, Mary Madeline, the reason that our two heroes in this film are able to get along and fall in love is because they don't actually disagree on very much or where they do disagree, you know, they, they treat the disagreement as trivial. But what's so funny about this movie is that it, it's set up right from this first scene uh, when they meet as, you know, a film that is is asking, you know, the, the difficult and fraught question of whether romance can really flourish across, you know, America's increasingly cavernous uh, partisan divide. But then the whole movie, the whole courtship, the the thing that's actually interrupting it is not any kind of political disagreement. It's the fact that Gina Davis has been involved with Christopher Reeve. So there actually <laughs> isn't like a like an ideological impediment to their love. It's just the fact that like there's a hotter guy who's like <laughs> who's cour- who's courting her and who also seems more interesting. Like he's a war correspondent. You know, he's he's handsome. He kind of seems like boring, but you know, Michael Keaton doesn't seem particularly interesting either so it's like those are the actual stakes of the movie not anything that they you know disagree about so the, the, really, at the end of the day, the movie is not even really providing an answer to its own question. It's It actually is just a paint-by-the-numbers rom-com where, you know, a lot of the politics stuff is almost sort of incidental. It's, it's as if somebody took a rom-com script and they were like, ah, there's not quite enough here. What's a thing in the 1990s that people care about? Ah, well, people seem to like that film, The War Room, and, you know, people seem really into this whole James Carville, Mary Madeline thing. So what if we smash the two together?
0: Yeah, it's gotta have a high concept. Just like how every action movie was like what if Die Hard was on a cruise ship or what if Die Hard was in a school or something like that this is what if Sleepless in Seattle was on a political campaign
1: <laughs> Well, I feel like we've beaten this movie to death, but we should say how it ends, uh, which is with this incredibly weird twist, I think on par with the twist in Man of the Year where it turns out that the Robin Williams comedian didn't actually win the election anyway that the whole movie has been premised on. In this movie, we learn in the last, I want to say 45 seconds to a minute before you know the inevitable kiss that consecrates the romance between our two heroes, uh, we learn that both the candidates they're working for have taken bribes and are corrupt uh, they're bribes from someone named Proctor. I couldn't figure out who that was, and I have to say I scoured the IMDB page and the Wikipedia page and just anything I could find, every plot summary I could find in this movie, I don't know who that is supposed to be.
0: I think it's an off-screen character. It's a kind of ominous force that just sort of introduces itself towards the end, you know? Like, he's, he's not a person. He is political corruption, and he comes for everyone. That's his function.
1: Right. So at the end of the movie, it turns out both of these candidates are corrupt, but Proctor, whoever he is, favors the Democrat for some reason.
0: He's probably in the pocket of George Soros. <laughs>
1: And then so they have this final kiss, both of them having sort of like broken up with their own, you know, respective campaigns over this corruption. And then everybody in the, you know, hotel ballroom where this victory speech has been interrupted by the kiss is just kind of like wrapped with what's happening, you know, balloons and confetti fall from the ceiling. And then there's a little epilogue or sort of like news ticker or something where you see the Christopher Reeve character talk about how Gina Davis is running for Congress and Michael Keaton is her campaign manager. So there you have it, folks. Love conquers all. I mean, nothing about this movie makes sense. I also think it's, the pacing is hilarious. It's so badly executed. The two characters have no chemistry at all. They have this whirlwind courtship in like the first 20 minutes of the movie where having just met, they just sort of drive off into the desert or something in a sports car and have this kind of night of romance where they're just instantly attracted to one another. And you know, this is something the film tries to show you but kind of fails to, it's really just telling you. It's like, okay, this is a romance. These are the beats we're hitting. This is what's going on, folks. Stick with the script.
0: If you remain in your seat, the plane will eventually come for an orderly (laughs) landing on time.
1: There's no doubt. I mean, right from like, like the first 10 or 15 minutes of the movie, there is absolutely no doubt that these two characters are going to end up together because there's never really any tension between them to begin with. The film has to kind of constantly invent these reasons why they're not getting together, most of which have to do with Christopher Reeve and then these perceived kind of like thefts, like they're both stealing intelligence from one another and using it against uh you know the the rival campaign but so the film ends up having it felt like three or four even five of these moments where there's kind of like cloying string music playing in the background and they're telling each other I love you and in one of these scenes the cloying string music is uh substituted for as time goes by so speechless I think can be indicted for many things but most severely you know breaking the classic mst3k rule which is never remind me of a good movie in the middle of your crappy movie both <laughs> and Ingrid Bergman, this is not, <laughs> okay? Kevin Balak was one of a kind. Can hey, you see that? The rack, shrapnel. See that? Guy threw up on me once in a bar in Pittsburgh. Until Hi. he met his match. What are you doing? French manicure. What is that? Same as a regular one, but I'm eating a croissant to being rude to myself. Julia.
0: What? I want to take your clothes off. On an unrelated topic, I just read Ben Burgess's recent book about Christopher Hitchens. Like you, I've been a long time, um, I wouldn't say devotee, but uh, Christopher Hitchens has been a long time subject of interest and frustration for me. So I was very happy to read an intelligent book about him that did a good job explaining exactly what his political evolution was. But reading that Gore Vidal book review, I was reminded of Hitchens' classic article about Gore Vidal, which was published in 2010. It was called Vidal Loco. It was published in Vanity Fair, and this was Hitchens's revenge for uh, Vidal snubbing him at a party which is footage by the way that you can see in the documentary Gore Vidal the United States of Amnesia there was actually a camera on hand to capture Vidal zooming right past Hitchens on camera as he was trying to talk to him but Hitchens retaliated with this hatchet piece article and I just wanted to share this passage which I which I think is very funny Uh, Hitchens is trying to build a case for why Vidal has sort of gone off the deep end he's lost his trademark wit he's gone into crackpot territory just a very sour old man Uh, he's just read an interview with Vidal in the London Independent conducted by Johan Hari and Hitchens writes rounding off his interview and obviously shocked mr. Hari tried for a change of pace and asked Vidal if he felt like saying anything about his recently deceased rivals John Updike William F Buckley jr. and Norman Mailer he didn't manage to complete his question before being interrupted Updike was nobody. Buckley was nothing with a flair for publicity. Mailer was a flawed publicist too, but at least there were signs every now and then of a working brain. Hitchens writes, One sadly notices, as with the foregoing barking and effusions, the utter want of any grace or generosity, as well as the entire absence of any wit or profundity. Sarcastic, tired flippancy has stolen the place of the first, and lugubrious resentment has deposed the second. Oh, just in closing then, since Vidal was in London, did he have a word to say about England? This isn't a country, this is an American aircraft carrier. Good grief. This is a funny passage for me to read because I actually think Vidal is really spitting fire on all those quotes. Uh, I think Vidal's in fine form there. It feels like late style to me. I like that, uh, wit and profundity have finally been sandpapered off, and now it's just become him saying, Actually, I really do hate that fucking John Updike. He he had no talent, and that's all I have to say on the matter. And I'm just sorry that Hitchens wasn't able to appreciate it. This is one case where, you know, an old man accepted his Lifetime Achievement Award with grace and dignity and strength. You must remember this.